This is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite things to do is bring back old stories, because the great ones stand the test of time. And hey, if you've never heard an old story, it's new to you. Abbott and Costello are comedy legends, but how many of us hear their material nowadays? At the height of their fame in the 1940s, they were among the most popular and the most highly paid entertainers in the world. Bud Abbott was born into a showbiz family. His father was an advance man for the Ringling Brothers Circus. His mother was a bareback rider. Lou Costello became a comic after failing to break into acting. Almost by chance, Bud Abbott was working at the Casino Theater in Brooklyn, New York in 1931 when a Lou Costello was the comic on stage and Costello needed a substitute straight man. Abbott and Costello were an instant success. Abbott was tall, thin, sardonic, and insulting, even condescending, always ready to slap down Costello for some idiotic comment. Costello was the buffoon, short, fat, always the sympathetic character. They worked the burlesque and vaudeville circuit and got national exposure in 1938 on the popular radio show, The Kate Smith Hour. This led to Broadway to four, a four-movie deal with Universal, and their own national radio show. One of their early radio performances was this one called Who's On First? A skit about baseball they wrote in collaboration with comedy writer John Grant. It became one of their most famous routines and one of the most famous comedy routines in history. Let's take a listen. Well, Costello, I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Habit, if you're the coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I, mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem, they give these ballplayers nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and... His brother Daffy. Daffy Dean. I'm their French cousin. French? Gouffet. Gouffet Dean. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, let's see, we have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Well, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Look, you got a first baseman. Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money on he first base? He does, every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's wife? Yes. <laughs> That. Look, what I want to know is when you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the Who? contract? The guy. Who? How does he sign his That's name? That's how to... he signs it. Who? Yes. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, don't change the players. Right? I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy, buddy. I'm only asking you who's the guy on first base? That's right. Okay. All right. <laughs> No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about him. Now, let's forget about him. Now, how did I get on third base? Why, you mentioned his name. If I mentioned a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. He's on third. There I go, back on third again. 
Now, who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Uh, what is on second? You know what? Who on second? Who is on first? I don't know. Third, third base! <laughs> Look, you got outfield? Sure. The left fielder's name. Why? I just thought I'd ask. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Now, tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? I'm not. Stay out of the infield! <laughs> I want to know what's the guy's name in left field. No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third, third base! <laughs> Why? Because. Oh, he's center field. Me, he's center field. Look, look, look. You got a pitcher on the team? Sure. The pitcher's name? Tamara. You don't want to tell me the date? I'm telling you, then man. go ahead. Tamara. What time? What time what? What time tomorrow are you going to tell me who's pitching? Now, listen. Who is not pitching? I'll who break is... your arm, you say. Who's on first? <laughs> I want to know what's the pitcher's name. What's on second? I don't know. Third base. Got <laughs> a catcher? Certainly. The catcher's name? Today. Today. And Tamar's pitcher. Now you've got it. All we got is a couple of days on the team. <laughs> you know, I'm a catcher, too. So they tell me. I get behind the plate, do some fancy catching. Tamar's pitching on my team, and a heavy hitter gets up. Yes. Now, the heavy hitter bunched the ball. When he bunched the ball, me being a good catcher, I want to throw the guy out of first base, so I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you've said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, that's all you have to do. Just to throw the ball at first base. Yes. Now, who's got it? Naturally. <laughs> Throw the ball to first base. Somebody's got to get it. Now, who has it? Naturally. Who? Naturally. Naturally? Naturally. So I pick up the ball and I throw it to naturally. No, you don't. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's different. That's what I said. You're not saying that. I throw the ball to naturally. You throw it to who? Naturally. That's it. That's what I said. Listen, you ask me. I throw the ball to who? Naturally. Now, you ask me. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's it. Same as you. Don't change your mind. Same as you. I throw the ball to who? Whoever it is drops the ball and the guy runs a second. Yes. Who picks up the ball and throws it to what? What throws it to I don't know. I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow. Triple play. Yes. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to be caused. Why? I don't know. He's on third and I don't give a darn. Well, what? I said I don't give a darn. Oh, that's our shortstop. I'm <laughs> And there you have it, one of the great comic bits of all time. And what timing, folks. And that's all those years in burlesque and in vaudeville doing this many times a day. And by the way, the dozens of comedies these two guys produced provided comic relief to an entire nation steeped in the tragedy of World War II. That's when they came to rise in their fame, and the nation needed the laughs, desperately. After the war, their fame declined, and they produced more low-budget ventures such as Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello Go to Mars, and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, my favorite, Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. I cackled like a kid when I was a kid, and now that I still get to see it every once in a while, I still cackle. The two dissolved their partnership in 1957, and Lou Costello died of a heart attack in 1959. While Costello might be the better-remembered comedian of the pair... Costello himself believed that Abbott was the true linchpin of their success and always insisted on splitting their earnings 60-40 in Abbott's favor. Quote, Comics are a dime a dozen, he explained. Good straight men are hard to find. This is Our American Stories, Abbott and Costello's story. Who's on first story? I don't know. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this edition, Take It Away. Do you love McDonald's fries? Maybe you even think they're the best in the history of mankind. Well, either way, you can thank this guy, at least partially. I developed the uh, world-famous now, the McDonald's French fry computer. And that put them really on a steep incline in in sales and revenue. What's the French fry computer? I don't know about this. French fry computer, your uh, audience will love to to hear as to why (laughs) McDonald's French fries are so good and so consistent. It's because of a computer? Absolutely. Uh, once you come to know the formula, now the formula is not my invention. The formula is the invention of the Potato Research Institute, which McDonald's had started in 1967. They had determined that besides the ingredients, you must cook the fries very, very uniformly, irrespective of the size of the bat, okay. irrespective of the starting temperature, irrespective of how many fries you put in inside to cook, you must have a constant amount of energy per cubic inch of the fry. So it's really a very advanced scientific instrument and a controller and a device. So that was the task I was, um, I was given. And, you know, I uh, so invented the product and, you know, national controls took off. Thankfully for all of us, this dude, the subject of today's American Dreamers feature, was successful. His name is Shali Kumar, and he wasn't even born in the land of the Golden Arches, the United States of America. Shali was born in India, in the foothills of the Himalayas, and for the first nine years of his life, his maternal grandparents adopted him. In India, in Hindus, this is kind of a common. And my nanaji, that is my maternal grandfather, in that family, there weren't any kids. So they wanted to have some kids. Can you imagine your grandparents saying, we don't have any kids in the house now. Can we have some of your kids? (laughs) Boy, this sure sounds foreign to us. But if you also think about it, it's a profound appreciation of human life. How did you, this lower uh, middle-class kid, get to get a degree in electrical engineering? Was that uncommon back then, or was it? It, was it, it is common? tough. It is tough. Yeah. Um, in fact, in India, the system is that roughly anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000 students that will appear in high school examination. So. It's a little different than here. You know, here you are graded by your teacher here. So that's a uniform examination, and you're scored among 100,000, 200,000 students. So normal custom will be your top during those days. Let's say, call it 1960s, when I graduated from high school. Top 300 will be taken into engineering. Automatically. They, they, will, they, they are qualified. They, most of them, 99%, they will 
go to engineering. Okay. Next 300 will go to medical school. Next 300, then different other professions. And these are just the cultural norms are so strong that everyone just followed. That's right. That that's right. So you had to be among the top 300 to get into an engineering school. That's fascinating that they put engineering higher than medicine. <laughs> I think it's changing now, but in 60s, engineering wow. was higher than medical. And in engineering itself, top was electronics. Electronics was coming up. So everybody wanted to be electronics engineer. So only the top 30 wow. will be in electronics. In that respect, uh, there's another story to tell you. In the family Shelley was born into all four of their biological children out of the over 100,000 students in the region scored among the top. Well, let's not hear it from me. Let's hear it from Shelley. The four of us. We all scored among the top 20 positions on a merit basis. Are you saying so that, that didn't happen? That, that does not family? happen. No other family. So when people look at our family and they say, what is this phenomenon? And to Shally, this phenomenon leads to an age-old question. What creates success? Is it soul? Because we believe in reincarnation. Is it genetics or is it environmental? Do you have an answer? I think it's a combination of, of the three. Hmm. Particularly, I say this because first nine years of my life, I spent with my maternal grandparents. I was an ordinary student. I never thought of scoring number one in among 200,000 students. Maybe yeah. if in my school itself, that if I'm in the middle, I thought it was pretty good. And then when I was nine years old, my family, my mother and father, uh, they took me back. And my mother is an absolutely a total disciplinarian. Makes you get up at five o'clock in the morning and regiment and it's like a real hard military school. <laughs> so so your whole life. it's environmental. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes me think it's environmental because... Sixth grade, I moved back to my parents, and first six months, I wanted to run away. I, I could not handle her discipline. <laughs> it was too tough. Okay. <laughs> send me back. Send me back. Oh, no. You had chosen not to be in this family, so you have to stay. Okay. No choice. And then they start scoring you actually in eighth grade. And all of a sudden, I'm number one in the university. I said, what? What happened? I never dreamt of that before. My mother said, you can be whatever you want to be. Uh, there, is, there is no limit. Why do you think you can't be number one in the university? And so, you know, I mean, that's, she always talked like that. Why did you come to America? It sounds like a softball question, but I'm sure you're <laughs> going to give me a great answer. <laughs> uh, my life as a student was moving in two directions. One, I was getting politically engaged. Mm. And that path would have been a problem. <laughs> so my parents wanted me to get away from that. Influenced by my mother, she was a champion of fighting corruption. And as a student, I had started an organization called National Anti-Corruption Organization to 
fight corruption in the society. India's number one problem even till today is corruption. So that was sort of my political uh, side. And the other side, I was just absolutely, totally fascinated with electronics. And I was scoring so high, uh, number one, two, or three in the university. In fact, there's a course in electronics engineering. It's called practical course, where you design and develop a product. So those days, electronics was not easy. The components were not easy to get in India. But I was so stubborn, and I found the right professor who was so interested in making me actually build the product I was designing. And, and, and that was the very first time in India somebody ever designed and built a product in college. So there the professor wanted me to go to the United States to continue my studies. And how hard it is to get parts, just to fully state this, this is pre-internet, right? So... <laughs> Oh, it wasn't as easy as going on the internet. Or... Oh, forget that internet, okay? It's not even a local store. So those days, if you burnt a transistor, mm-hmm. okay, uh, one part in your circuit, you will have to dispatch the storekeeper on a train, take the night train, go to Delhi, buy that part, <laughs> and come back. So, so it's a two-day affair for a storekeeper to get a transistor. So, and there is no ordering. You have to go get, go to the shop and find the transistor and get it. And that's Alex in Chicago with Shali Kumar, our American Dreamers series from the foothills of India to the United States where he builds a big, big, big business. Our American Dreamers series continues Shali Kumar's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to our American Dreamers series, as always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, who work hard on the regulatory and public policy front to help small business owners grow into bigger business owners and live the American dream. And we're talking about Shali Kumar, who happens to be the owner of AVG, a group of companies which design and manufacture electronic products. They're headquartered, by the way, in Chicago, and they have operations around the world. And every product is manufactured right here in the United States. And when we left off, Shally was telling us about creating an electrical product in college. And it was a phase meter, a device that measures the time between sine waves. And we continue now with Alex, up in Chicago, sitting down with Shally and continuing this conversation on what it meant to his life when he got here to America. That came in very, very handy 
because when I was looking for a job, I graduated in 1970. I got, got my master's from IIT. That's the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. That phase meter and that design helped me a lot because 1970 was a recession year and college graduates, particularly without a permanent visa, were finding no jobs. And because of this phase meter I had built, that gave me an opportunity to get a real job as an electronics designer with a small company called Nanofast, just a 10-employee company that was building products for NASA for uh, space uh, exploration. I think just that one fact you just said, the fact that ten a 10-employee 10 company could be selling a product to NASA. Oh, yes. It's just remarkable. That speaks volumes about our country. I mean, That's talk, right. Talk about that. <laughs> right, That's right. Yeah, uh, is, uh, no question um, the, the growth of the country. You know, uh, I think the numbers are somewhere like uh, 75, 80% of all new jobs get created by small companies. Mm -hmm. And that's where the innovation, that's where the country grows from. You know, it's not the large corporations. It's the small enterprises where uh, inventive minds are rewarded. This is one country, I think probably the only country left in the world, where if you are a risk taker, you're innovative, you are going to get rewarded. America has been absolutely phenomenal uh, for me. Uh, 48 years I've been here. And many times you'll worry about that, you know, is there a, a racist component in here? Would you ever face that problem? Did you? I have never in 48 years. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, either you call it lucky or, or this is what how America is. I have never seen any discrimination against me because of my you know, skin color yeah. and my coming from India. How was integrating, though? I mean, what did you kind of expect going in? What was your picture of America? Did you ever see American movies or TV shows or books? Or no, what, what did you kind of know coming in? And then well, I, I, that, that was also an interesting experience. <laughs> Just, uh, I mean, it is a faraway land. And the first month I was writing to my mother, everything looks different. I think moon is different here. I think the sun <laughs> is different here. <laughs> and, you know, large space, just everything is so spacious. And what the expectation from India coming in here is that just everything is paved with gold. It's a golden paved city and state and country. And, you know, you never ever think of crime at all. In, in fact, when I came here in 69 and I joined uh, IIT and stayed in the dorm, that one big surprise came up. So you go to the foreign students advisory uh, room. And the first thing I was told, and I was sort of shocked at, they gave us four border streets, 31st to the north, 35th to the south, Wabash and Dearborn, four streets. If you go outside these streets, we are not responsible for your <laughs> life. What? We have come to a country where <laughs> everything is paved with gold. <laughs> and uh, you're talking about you cannot go outside this territory. That was sort of the ghetto. I learned the term ghetto uh, first time when you're asking, oh, what is it? Why can't we go? 
uh, outside this. Not safe, not safe. So, you know, so it was kind of a mixed uh, um, experiences. Yeah. Uh, of course, um, food was a big, big, big challenge. There was a very nice family, molars in Barrington, who had participated in what was called Experiment in International Living. So I had applied for that. So I was chosen to spend one month prior to joining college, IIT, to spend a month with them. And gosh, they had a problem trying to figure out what to feed me. Take me to a grocery store. Uh, I've never been to a grocery store in, uh, in India. How did you have never been to a grocery store? Because you are, uh, you are either you're served by your mother or you are in college where you go to the cafeteria and, and they serve you. So I've never, I don't know what they look like in a grocery store. And uh, so everything looks different to me. I mean, nothing like uh, what the dishes serve to me. How do I recommend or how do they even gonna make that dish? So uh, they had really a hard time figuring out what to feed me. So after about a week, what they settled on is bread and <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. So I ate that for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, for the next <laughs> 30 days. Yeah. 30 days. No, you know, today you could find any kind of food in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, great food, great Indian food, great Mexican food, great Italian food, great any food. So, but uh, did you try American food when you came here? They tried. They, I mean, you know, they tried to give you feed, pizza or hot dogs or uh, they tried to give me anything and everything which they could try, and yeah. they just would not uh, settle. Did you just you didn't like it? No, no. Yeah. Just, you like uh, it today? Uh, today it's very different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, today very different. They, uh, of course, you know, actually uh, for food wise. Here, for a person who has got a taste for, or who has grown up in India, Indian food is the number one. Mexican will be number two. Huh. Italian will be number three. <laughs> that is the closest. Because, uh, you know, there is a lot of uh, tomato preparations in the Indian food. Yeah. Italian also has a lot of tomato-based. And, and pizza is closer to, uh, yeah. to Indian food. So... You know that's um, that is the order which we had uh, we had packed. <laughs> Did you ever go to a White Sox game? Uh, White Sox? No, there's no way you could afford to go to a White Sox game. You're just across I, the expressway. Uh, from yeah, there. but you couldn't afford to go to any White Sox games or anything like that. In fact, uh, I remember this. So after a month, you're here, your hair grows. You want to have a haircut. And I remember the haircut at that time was $4. $4 you quickly multiply by your Indian currency. 7 rupees to a dollar. 28 rupees for a haircut. And I'm going like, no way, Jose, I'm going to have a haircut here from a regular hair salon. So you 28 rupees? 28 rupees, my God. Over there you get, I had never paid more than a quarter. That means uh, 100. More than 100 for a haircut. So, okay, I uh, talked to my other friends. <laughs> what are you guys doing? <laughs> and so they say, we, we are also having the same shot. <laughs> so 
let's go cut each other's hair let's say if we can just find a scissor <laughs> and we'll cut each other's hair and you're listening to Shali Kumar remembering and recounting his early days in the United States an immigrant from India an American dreamer par excellence here on our American stories Shali Kumar's story more after these messages Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of this fantastic American Dreamers feature with Shali Kumar, the owner of AVG, a group of companies which design and manufacture electronic products, and all of them are made in America. And our own Alex Cortez continues with Shali in Chicago on his experience emigrating from India to the United States. How much money did you bring over? Uh, for me, it was a quite a challenge. It was, what I say is, uh, I came into the country with minus $5,000. Okay. <laughs> so how do you come up with <laughs> yeah, <there's an> explanation. <laughs> minus $5,000? Okay. So the uh, first year expenses at IIT, including your tuition and as well as your books and stay and mm-hmm. uh, dorm and all that was $5,000. So, in order to get a student visa to come to United States, what we had to do was to show that I have $5,000 in a bank. The U.S. government required that. So, of course, my family has, you know, maybe they could come up with $20, <laughs> not, <laughs> not $5,000. So, we did a, a sort of a campaign to have from my friends and from relatives uh, $20, $30 here until we get $5,000. So we got $5,000 in the bank. You did? Yeah. Just from the people in your community. Yeah, people in the community. So, and, wow. and we got $5,000 in the bank. Uh, so you get a visa, you're on your way. So, but the money is gone <laughs> because they need the money back. So that money I did not have. So that's why I say... I had, theoretically, I had $5,000, but practically, I had zero. Okay, but you had to have a little bit above that for emergencies, right? That was, the dad was sent over there with $50. $50. $50 was uh, <laughs> given to me. Did you um, pay back all the people who contributed? Yeah, yeah, of course. Tell me then about founding this company. It must have been only a few years after you graduated from IIT. Yes, um, in uh, 1975, yeah. I was just inventing a lot of products and I was having a lot of fun. I've always, as a student and as an engineer, I've worked 100 hours a week. Not still. Still, still. I cannot. I work, I work 70 to 80 hours a week. It's hard to push it to 100. No, 100 hours a week. Really? I, 100 to 120 hours a week. I cannot work less than that. Otherwise, I'll, I'll get sick. Uh, so... After Nanofast, that 10-person company, mm-hmm. two years later, I joined another company 
called National Controls Corporation. That was also, by the way, a very small company. They had, the company at the time I joined them had six employees. And uh, the two owners were John Ruzier and Gus Kuchaski. One was an Italian immigrant and the other was a Polish immigrant. And they were into this uh, controls company. And there was an engineer who was, they were not electronics. They were both mechanical. Okay. So they had an electronics engineer who was really more like a technician. He was blackmailing them every month. Double my salary, otherwise I quit. Sounds okay. pretty good. I don't know it was very good. So, <laughs> for him. Yeah, for him. Yeah. Well, no, it wasn't very good for him. Uh, they, they put up with it for about a year. <laughs> and, and then they put an ad and they found me. Within a week, he was gone. And what I found, they, he was not really a very good designer. He was more like a technician. So he didn't really have a, a good theoretical uh, background to support his practical designs. So... Then I embarked on a period which was just absolutely phenomenal, 1972. Every month, a new product. Company grew from six employees to 200 employees within two years. Almost entirely because of your... Design, design, design. And, and you know, I was do the, doing the electronic circuit design. And, and those, two, those two guys, John and Gus, was very good in mechanical. So they'll put the package together, do the housing... And, you know, I was so elated that, you know, I can come up with a circuit. I could design a circuit in a day. Okay, so I designed a circuit and in a, in a month it's fully functional, ready to go to the market. Did you have a stake in the National Controls Company? What was that like? National Controls, what happened is... Did you ask they, for a raise? No, 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 no. I didn't even ask. I was so happy in just designing products, okay? Uh, I didn't care for about the money at all. Not, not, not money at all. Okay, <laughs> and they all of a sudden came to me one day and offered me twenty five percent of ownership in the company. Twenty five percent. That's huge. Yep, just twenty five percent ownership in the company. And the company, when it grew so fast, they think they have made enough money. The company is so valuable now that they could sell the company. And I asked John Ruzier and Gus Kuchaski, please, please, I don't want to work for anybody else. You know, we have a great team here. I want to continue to design and you continue to do mechanical design. And that, that's really good life. So, no, 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 no. We got we to gotta sell. So I said, no, I don't really want to be sold. So they said, okay, why don't you buy? Why don't you buy us out? I, I'm an engineer. I don't know anything about finance. I don't know anything about uh, sales and marketing. Me? I'm not a salesman. So uh, to handle sales and marketing yeah. and finance and all that. So uh, what am I going to do? So they said um, they will, they'll help. They, in fact, what they did is they set up the whole finance structure. The price to sell. Buy price, sell price. I didn't have nothing to do with it. They set everything up and sold the company to me. And they just uh, helped me out. And they, even, you know, so even after they retired, they kept helping you out? Yep. They kept helping me out. Very, very nice. Very good people. Uh, another thing that in that respect, I remember, uh, I just told you that uh, I was really scared of sales. And so when my partner said, I guess you, you have to handle sales as well. So one day they... Um, 
wanted me to have a practice run and actually go out on a sales call. <laughs> and I was hiding from room to room. <laughs> literally. To, literally. literally. <laughs> like it was time for the call and they kept trying to find you? <laughs> they tried to find me. <laughs> no, I actually, uh, I hid myself in a toilet. <laughs> actually. Paging oh. system and all that was not really that good. <laughs> that is in the 70s. And um, I said, me? A salesman? I, I don't think I could uh, make a sales call. Then I remember my partner telling me these words. And he said, those days there was used to be a uh, commercial. The commercial used to just say, when E.F. Hutton talks, everybody listens. So uh, my partner says, you are E.F. Hutton of electronics and automation. Don't worry, they're going to listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> so I went with that confidence. And I, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I thought this <laughs> pretty easy. So, you know, people were all very, very respectful. And I enjoyed every moment of my 48 years in the United States. This is such a great country which uh, gives opportunity to anyone. The sky's the limit. In contrast, the sky wasn't the limit for everyone in Shali's native India under its former regime of a government-controlled economy. After 1991, when the country of India had gotten broke, the World Bank, or IMF, declared that India will no longer be given any dollar denomination funds. And they had only two weeks supply left of dollar denominated funds to get food imports to even feed the country. The IMF essentially said, unless you deregulate and make it into a private economy, we're going to cut you off. And that's where India started on the path of capitalism, India was forced to deregulate. And prior to that, here's what you have to do to get a telephone line in your home. Minimum one year to apply for a telephone line at your home. What took a year? Government. Because the whole telecom, telephone industry would be, is, was governed by the government, controlled by the government. It's called licensed Raj. That is, uh, you control all your population through licenses. And anybody to start a business, you had to first get a license. When you have to get a license, you have to bribe people. Only large companies can manage that. There were no entrepreneurs, small businessmen. Uh, but just imagine today, out of a population of 1.3 billion people in India, there are at least a billion cell phones, maybe more. <laughs> imagine if that 1991 episode did not happen and India was still waiting one year to get a telephone line. What will be the communication status today in, in India? Just imagine. And here, 
the landlines and all that all got bypassed with the, <laughs> with the cell phone. Who needs a landline? That's Shelly Kumar, and I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that, Alex, our American Dreamers series. Shelly Kumar, the owner of AVG. His story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and for the hour, the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. The Godfather was a classic. The Sopranos, wow, what TV. But you want to talk a movie that left a mark? Goodfellas is a 1990 American biographical crime film directed by Martin Scorsese. It's an adaptation of the 1986 nonfiction book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi. The film narrates the rise and fall of mob associate Henry Hill and his friends over a period Well, almost 25 years, from 1955 to 1980. But after wrapping his first feature film, Mean Streets, in 1973, Martin Scorsese never saw himself making another gangster movie. That is, until he picked up the book by Nicholas Pileggi called Wise Guy. Here's Scorsese and Pileggi on how Goodfellas was set in motion. Having dealt with that world to a certain extent, I felt, therefore, I never really wanted to touch upon that world again. But... I found that the the style of the book was so interesting, and I tried to say, boy, if I can make a film like the style of this book, because what's the point of making another gangster picture? There have been several books about mob bosses, but it was like getting a hold of a soldier in Napoleon's army. That's who I wanted. I wanted to know how it worked inside. Detail, detail, detail. Everything is detail. I was interested in the minutiae of how to live as a wise guy. I wanted to get into the, the frame of mind of a guy who works that way every day. And you also had the voice of Henry. So much of that book was just his telling the story. And Marty called, and he said, uh, hello? He said, yeah, my, my name is Marty Scorsese. He said, I'm a film director, a movie director, I think he said. And I, he said, do you know? I, and I said, I know who you are. And he said, well, I'm calling you because he said, I just read your book. And he said, I've been looking for this book for years. I said, well, I've been waiting for this phone call all my life. So he said, I want to do it. But he wanted to write it with me, but he couldn't make a deal with me. So I said, don't worry about it. The deal with you is on the phone now. We will make this movie. Don't you worry about anything else. I hadn't put my name on a script since Mean Streets, and I wanted to create an exhilaration of that kind of life. Now, when you're working with Marty, of course, he already sees the movie. I didn't, but it was all right. He brought me along. You know, I did most of the typing, I don't, but he writes longhand. So I would type, and then it would come out, and then he would scratch these little things on it, and we would work on it, and, we'd, and, and the dialogue would be bounced back and forth between us. So we would, we would develop scene after scene. In this scene, this is what's going to happen, then we go to this. And he also said, put in the corner, put in the corner, and he would mention a piece of music. I want that music here. And anyone who has seen a Scorsese movie knows how much the music drives the movie. Nowhere is this fact better exemplified than in his Goodfellas picture. For Scorsese, who carries a music library in his head, he hears the music while he's penning the script. You know, we did our jobs and, you know, we had great makeup and they made us look all whacked out. But talk about music and editing. Everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Let's go shopping. 
Marty had such great ideas about how to put music to to some of those images. When we were writing, there's that scene where Bob De Niro is standing at the bar with a cigarette, and he's looking at Manny, and he's going to kill him. And you know he's going to kill him. And Marty has this shot, and he gets closer and closer and closer, and Bob's eyes get more wolf-like. It was just the most terrifying picture. And as I'm typing that stuff, because I'm the typist, he says, put in cream, put in cream. I said, what cream? He says, just write, write down cream. I said, right, what's, what cream? Who are you talking about? Just put it, just put it, put it, put it. Do me a favor, just put it. So I typed in cream. Well, it turns out, while we're typing that scene, he's already listening to the music. So now, you can't, I can't interpret that. I can't tell you where that, it's all intuitive. It's all part of whatever comes out of him. Now I look at that scene, when I see it, it's just, it's an amazing scene with that music and that close-up of Bob. Conway, uh, the De Niro character, he decides at that point, being annoyed by all these people around him asking for their cut of the job, the Lufthansa robbery and all that stuff, why should he give it to anybody? Why shouldn't he just keep it all for himself? The only way to do that is to give uh, his friend, you know, Tommy, Joe Pesci's uh, character, a little sort of nod wink, in a sense. You see that in his eyes, and we shot that, I think, at 32 frames a second or 36 frames, just to get, I don't know. I didn't know what I was going to get, but then when I saw the rushes, I saw that gleam in his eyes, and I synced that to the guitar from Sunshine of Love right to that point. Some of it, he just he put into the film in the editing room. He has a deep sense of how music should go with a film, and by that I don't mean that, that, uh, that it should go easily. Sometimes it's a shocking choice. Uh, but it works like crazy. I kind of see everything with music, especially the juxtaposition of the type of music you're listening to, to the images that you see out the window, and that sort of thing. And I, I said, that's the way music should be in a movie. That was the first time I had ever seen anyone shot. Remember where you ever heard first? Oh, uh, usually, yeah, usually a piece of music. I remember when I first heard it. Where, with your mother in a butcher and, shop. Or... Yeah, yeah. And um, he'll carry those pieces of music around for years and then suddenly find exactly the right place for that piece. Each shot was designed to certain bars of Layla. We had the music already played on the set to get the right rhythm for the movement or for the length of the scene. And when I got in the editing room, then I had to make sure that I was trying to get exactly what he wanted. He was very specific about how he wanted the music to cut. Let's try this. It's really on the way. Yeah. Right here. We're starting. Goodfellas was one of those films that uh, I felt we rode like a horse. It was so beautifully scripted and shaped by Nick Pledge and Marty that it had its own energy, it had its own drive, and as Marty was laying it down, it just had an incredible feeling to it. So we were sort of riding it and trying to stay on top of it and stay ahead of it if we could, but it was so strong. It had such a rhythm. And when we come back, more on the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. 
This is Our American Story. And as always, we take you on some diversions and some side trips on some of the most iconic artists, movies, music, and good fellas, it doesn't get better. More after these messages. I'll soon be with you, my love. Give you my dog surprise. This is Our American Stories, the making of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. We continue that story. The three main characters were played by Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, who got the role after Al Pacino turned it down, and Ray Liotta, who only had four movies under his belt, but beat out Sean Penn for the role as Henry Hill. Paul Sorvino, who was cast as mob boss Paul Cicero, had no problem finding the voice and walk of his character, but found it challenging finding what he called that kernel of coldness and absolute hardness that is antithetical to my nature, except when my family is threatened. Here is Sorvino on how he struggled finding the dark realities of his character. That I didn't think I could do it. Because it was not the kind of role that I felt I really had an affinity for. The externals were easy, a middle-aged Italian man. The difficulty was in the lethality that I felt I didn't possess. And so even though I wanted to do it, I was sort of faking when I went to the meeting and giving Martin the impression that I knew exactly what to do with it when I had no idea what to do with it. But I wanted so much to be in a Scorsese movie. I guess he just figured I was capable of it. And uh, it went, it was about two months uh, in preparation to try to get this quality that I knew it called for. I was kind of agonizing over it for a couple of months. I was thinking, I'm going to ruin this movie. I was looking for something to get out of it. Until two days before we started production, by virtue of constantly searching to find where that kind of quality that killers have. Uh, I was preparing to go out one night, uh, passed by the mirror to check for spinach in the teeth, and uh, I jumped back. I, I literally frightened myself. I saw a look in my eyes that frightened me. And who was that? I said, that's Paulie. And once I found it, the role became just a duck in water. It just was so easy to do. Now, what Paulie and the organization does is offer protection for people who can't go to the cops. That's it. That's all it is. They're like the police department for wise guys. <laughs> in order to create the greatest degree of truth, reality, and believability in his scenes, Scorsese is infamous for putting his actors through improvisations. Here's the Goodfellas team discussing this playful procedure. So much of what Scorsese does is in the way he directs. Uh, and so you see something entirely different up on the screen often than is in that script. If I felt the scene could be opened up, I usually did that with the actors in rehearsal. So we would rehearse 35, 40 minutes a scene. And they were all improvisations. They were very loosely around the script. Just sort of what, would, what was happening. Not improvising by writing lines. I mean, improvising behaviorally. He always says, don't act like 
these people behave like them. You know me, I would like to help you out. I hope so. Sonny, tell him what we talked about. He knows so well what actors need and how to help them. And then he'll see something he likes and he'll come over and say, you know, um, you know what you said in that other improvisation? Why don't you say that to him again? Or, or um, let him have it. Now go home and get your f***ing shine box. Mother he uses the power of the verb. Acting is doing something. I threaten, I charm, I beg. And what Martin does in the improvisation is encourage the doing of things. Well, that merely means stay with the other fellow and deal with what he's giving you. What are you, stupid? What's the matter with you? I apologize. What's the matter with you? Sorry. What the f*** is the matter with you? You feel like you're a real collaborator. He makes you feel that way. And in a certain sense, you are because you're giving all the good things that you have. And you see anybody f***ing around with this, you're going to tell me, right? Yeah. That means anybody. He knows what he wants to do, but you really feel like you're creating and he's letting you go uh, to do what, what, what you've come up with. That's just the way he is. He, he's very open to a lot of uh, ideas from anybody. That was for an actor was like the jackpot and that was lorraine brocco talking and it was the jackpot for everyone who acted in this movie but the thing about improvisation is for scorsese at least it's just a tool a tool that is used by writers to chisel out a very detailed script of dialogue for the actors it can be said that joe pesci owns not only the most famous improvised scenes in movie making history but the most famous scene Here's Goodfellas star Joe Pesci. You don't improvise on camera when we're shooting. They all think that Marty just doesn't do anything, that he lets the actor say, okay, go ahead, and he sits there like this, you know, and, and enjoys it. You know, It's not true. I mean, it's so crazy to think that you can go in there and make a movie like that. It has to be structured. You're still saying a script. <laughs> hey, I wish I was big just once. <laughs> You're a big You're cop. A really funny. <laughs> really funny. Uh, what do you mean I'm funny? <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know. You're, you're, it's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. <laughs> that scene in uh, uh, I Make You Laugh. Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Uh, you know, I didn't write that. I get credit for that all the time. People want to give me awards. Well, you wrote that. I never wrote that. Joe made it up. What? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> You mean, so? well, let me understand this. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you? I make you laugh? What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? When Joe told the story that, that it happened to him about you're a funny guy, except he was on the receiving end of it, uh, we then improved it for a while in rehearsal and then locked it in. I'm not just... Do you know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. And that was very carefully worked on within our rehearsal period. I was able, as a co-writer, to record several takes, maybe four to five takes between Ray and Joe of this dialogue. I then took that and rewrote that, which was then inserted into the script. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? (laughs) It was interesting how he shot that sequence. He's shooting it in a medium shot, not in a 
close-up. And the reason I always tell film students this, that it's very important, is that, first of all, he knew the scene was powerful enough that he did not need close-ups. And secondly, what he really wanted to show was how the people around Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta were gradually changing the looks on their faces as, as the sense of dread began to creep into what was supposed to be a casual conversation. And suddenly, it is wonderful how you see their faces change. And he was very adamant that that's how he wanted to shoot it. Oh, oh Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? You're right. Funny how. And you just watch his body language. And you know it's dead serious. And it could turn on a, a split second. But hard to cut. Marty and I spent a long time figuring out how long to wait until Ray Liotta actually says, come on, Tommy. Funny. What the f*** is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the f*** out of here, Tommy. <laughs> Your mother f I almost had him. I almost had him. Stuttering, yeah, stuttering prick yet. Frankie, was he shaking? All the laughter you hear on the track is me and them and everybody. Because <laughs> we had to create an atmosphere of, a, of, of that kind of a moment on the set. And, of course, a lot of the guys standing around had no idea it was Joe was going to improvise at that point. So there were, a lot of those reactions were absolutely pure. The backstory to the story you just heard is that while working in a restaurant, a young Pesci apparently told a mobster that he was funny, a compliment that was met with a less than enthusiastic response. Pesci relayed the anecdote to Scorsese, who decided to include it in the film. Scorsese didn't include the scenes in the shooting script so that Pesci and Laota's interactions could elicit genuine surprise and genuine reactions from the supporting cast. By the way, the F-bomb is dropped 296 times during the film, averaging twice per minute, making it the 12th most F-bomb-laden film ever released. The script only called for the word to be used 70 times, by the way, but much of the dialogue was improvised during the shooting where the expletives just, well, piled up. Roughly half of them are by Joe Pesci. After Pesci's mother saw the film, she said she liked it but asked if he had to swear so much. And when we come back, we're going to dig into more of the story behind the story of the making of one of the great American gangster films, one of the great American films. And by the way, listening to that scene and remembering what it looked like, that, that nervousness that turned into laughter. And by the way, if you've ever met one of these wise guys in your life, they live off the power of turning on the dime how your day's going. And that's what they love. They'll kill you. They'll make you laugh. But it's all about them. And they get this minutia beautifully in Goodfellas. More of the story behind the story of the making of Goodfellas. This is Our American Stories. Like the fella once said, ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black. I hugged her and she hugged back Like the sailor said, quote, ain't that a hole in a boat My head keeps spinning I go to sleep and keep grinning If this is just the beginning My life is gonna be beautiful I've sunshine enough to spread it's just like the fella said Tell me quick, ain't love a kick 
Oh yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Oh yeah. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation. Actually, we continue the storytelling of the making of Goodfellas. And we just heard a great story about an improvised scene that became a part of a script that ultimately became, I think, the best scene in the entire movie, that showdown between Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci while the guys were hanging out in a bar and just having some fun, and it turned dark and it turned ugly, but that was just Joe Pesci messing around with everybody. But no one there knew it was going to happen. And no one in the audience did too. And that's what made that scene so good. And then there's Scorsese's legendary Steadicam shot. Just like the training montage in Rocky, the Steadicam is responsible for another unforgettable movie scene. It's one of the few shots in the history of cinema readily identifiable by name, instantly conjuring the image of Goodfellas. Low-level mobster Henry Hill, played by Liotta, leads his future wife Karen, played by Lorraine Bracco, and by extension the audience through the back entrance of New York's legendary Copacabana nightclub as Steadicam operator Larry McConkie glides along behind them. This legendary Steadicam shot through that nightclub kitchen was an accident. Scorsese, who didn't even like using Steadicams at first, had been denied permission to go through the front door. And so... He had to improvise another plan. So how long did one of the film's most famed tracking shots take to pull off? It was in the can before lunch, which isn't to say it was easy. After all, the uncut shot lasts a remarkable three minutes and four seconds. Thank you, sir. All right, see you later. Thanks. What are you doing? You're leaving your car? I never even knew when we were making it what that scene was. I never knew. I had I was clueless. I'd never even seen a steady cam. And that doesn't exist in the book. But it does in just a couple of lines. Except a couple of lines in the book in the hands of the director, that's where you begin to see a nonfiction book in detail really blossom into a kind of art. How you doing? Good, good. What's up? There you go. The whole idea is that it had to be done in one take, so you don't feel that it was a series of cuts or that there was a separation between him and the world that he was trying to get into. The camera flowed through and, and just glided through this world. Just all, all the doors opened to him and everything just slipped away. It was like heaven. And then to emerge like a king and queen, this was the highest he could aspire to. It was kind of tricky also to get all the actions right because Marty is so very accurate about every single timing. You know, what the people do in the kitchen. The guy with the table comes at the right time and brings the table over. All these things are very important. But as far as I remember, we shot the scene only eight times and it was not even a full day. But we wanted it really in one shot and we got it in one shot. Take my wife, please. (laughs) And that voice you just heard was that of comedian Henny Youngman. If you remember the scene, they get that great seat in the hottest club in town And boy, Lorraine Bracco thinks she struck gold. And Henry Hill, he's living large. And Henny Youngman, of course, is the king of one-liners who played himself in that club scene. 
The reason that three-minute shot had to be redone eight times was not because of complications choreographing it, but because it ends on Youngman. But Youngman kept fluffing his lines, spoiling the close of the scene. Scorsese's attention to detail can be seen in all of his films, especially in Goodfellas. Here's Scorsese on the set of Goodfellas doing a wardrobe inspection on the actor who plays the young Henry Hill. Uh, the kid doesn't look like a gangster yet. He has to look. His shoes are going to be shined. You got a pinky ring, kid? Yeah. Yeah, that's better. Mm-hmm. I would like it just a little bit. We don't have any stays in the collar? Yeah, this one doesn't call for No stays, stays Christine? He was very obsessed about the collars that the mafia wear, where they're almost closed over the tie. And only his mother and father could could actually press those collars properly. So Marty would reject actor after actor who didn't have the right pressed collar, and they would be sent back, and his mother would properly iron it. He tied my tie every day. The way he wanted the knot was very specific, and I guess from when he was growing up, and every day he would tie my tie and, and, and get, the, uh, get the knot right. I think he, you know, he's very careful to make sure that it's believable. You know, he's all, he'll often say to me in dailies, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. It's the beautiful evocation of food. And he loves, for example, very tight shots of keys being put into locks and or doorknobs being turned. Because there are things that we do a thousand times a day but aren't ever celebrated in quite that way. They're distilled images, and they have a meaning. They have a real meaning for us, but that we don't even realize because we do them so many times a day. And what's so beautiful and dangerous about Goodfellas is Martin Scorsese's ability to get us, the audience, to sympathize somehow with the bad guys. But he doesn't leave us there. Scorsese's truthful portrayal of the human heart leaves us at the end of the film with real moral clarity. But the only way you can really be truthful about it is to really not be inhibited by anything. What do you mean, don't be like... I think it explains what the world is really like. And part of what's so interesting is that it starts out as a lot of fun. We're as bad as they are. We're happy to see the postman go in the oven. And all of a sudden, of course, when Spider gets shot, it all turns and it changes. I mean, he shoots that poor kid in the foot. You should know then, these are not, this is not the way to live. You don't be sucked in by these guys, because it's only going to end one way before the Witness Protection Program. It only ended one way. Death. It was the most frightening thing. I mean, I was out of my body for a minute, you know. I had to put myself in a frame of mind to really kill someone. I made them put full loads in the gun, in the 45, because I wanted to hear the echo. I wanted to feel the gun really kick like a real 45. The silence after the last shot rang out was more deafening than the gun. I think I brought more of almost like a documentary attitude towards it. I wanted to show you uh, the star of the movie is a way of life, not a character. Somebody uh, commented that uh, it's like Scarface without Scarface, but that's what it is. Yeah, we don't need Scarface in the film. You know, it's the way of life. If you grow up around that, um, what I wanted to show you was um, the danger of the exuberance of that kind of life at first, you see. The danger of the exuberance, the ex- danger of the excitement. When you're young, you think you're, you you're going to live forever, and you, you, know, you, you think you're tough, and you could take a few more shots in the head than somebody else could. And so you, you think you're tougher than the other person. Well, eventually, if you don't use your brain, 
you know, you're not going to wind up anywhere. And I think the, the danger of the excitement of that lifestyle is what I grew up around. And I saw a lot of people uh, disappear because of that. Marty wants you to figure things out yourself. He wants you to come to the film and you to look at it and decide how you feel about it. He doesn't want to tell you what to think. He wants you to experience it. And I think that's what makes the film great. There's no judgment on these characters. We're the ones to judge. He just gets it right. And if you've ever grown up near mobsters, and I've spent quite a bit of time, if you grow up near Newark, New Jersey, when I grew up, or liked playing horses like I did and go to an OTB in Brooklyn, there they were. And everyone loved them, but more importantly, everyone was afraid of them. And you always heard a story, and then every once in a while you'd see it. You'd see him beat the you-know-what out of somebody almost to death, and it would scare the life out of you. And they loved that. They loved it. I knew that wasn't my life. It was none of my friends' life. We stayed far away. We're not attracted to it at all. But many, many impressionable young men drawn right into the life. No better movie about the life. I think even better than The Godfather. Because it wasn't as romantic. These guys are rough. And it's ugly. And when they're digging ditches and throwing guys in, uh, into a ditch, shooting a kid in the foot over nothing... Uh, you get the, the real sense that these are some pretty bad dudes and that gun could turn on you in any minute. When we come back, our final segment on the making of Goodfellas. This is Our American Stories. Your love is all that ever mattered. It's everything. our American stories, the final segment, our hour-long celebration of the making of Goodfellas. And by the way, in the first season of The Sopranos, Tony's nephew Christopher, played by Michael Imperioli, shoots a bakery employee in the foot for simply making him wait. As he leaves, the wounded bread seller yells, he shot my foot! And Christopher replies, it happens. It's a nod to Imperioli's character Spider getting shot in the foot by Joe Pesci a decade earlier in Goodfellas. And if you remember, that kid working at the bar got shot in the foot for nothing. And that's, that's what both of those stories are about. I've got to also add that The Sopranos is really about the fall of the mob post-Rico. Because in the 80s, Rudy Giuliani came to town and there was a statute called the Rico Statute, which was an organized crime statute, which allowed... Everyone in the organized crime enterprise to go to jail for the crime of one because they acted in concert. And this was how they finally got the bosses, the underbosses, and everybody. And it was going to take an Italian to bring him down. And it was an Italian guy named Rudy Giuliani who was then a U.S. attorney. And he was fearless. And there were death threats, as you can imagine. But Giuliani, Giuliani fiercely remembered his father getting shaken down by mobsters and also hated the impression 
this was creating in Italian-American neighborhoods, and nobody was more a victim of Italian mobsters than Italian merchants who either paid the freight and had their hard work and dollars stolen from them or, well, bombs blew up. And my grandfather owned a pizzeria in Brooklyn, and he always had to pay the freight for the garbage, and he had to order a certain kind of cheese. And I would say, Grandpa, why? And he'd say, it's just the way it is. And they basically stole about a third of his profits every year. And then they'd give a little bit to the church, and they'd have a feast of San Gennaro, and, and everybody would pretend to like the mob, but they hated the mob, and they were afraid of the mob. And it was a lot of fake respect they got on the streets because they were just afraid of getting shot in the foot. For a film renowned for violence, Goodfellas has a relatively low body count compared to today's standard, with a count of just 10, which isn't terribly bloody when compared to the 255 body count in Saving Private Ryan. Once the scenes were shot, it was up to Thelma Schoonmaker, Scorsese's editor, to create movie magic. We've been hearing from her throughout this piece, but here she is with Scorsese and Goodfellas producer Erwin Winkler discussing how the uncharacteristic editing at the end of the film shaped the film. A great deal of Marty's movies are made in the editing room, particularly The Last Day as a Wise Guy, as we call it. Last Day as a Wise Guy is, is a sequence that I think came together particularly in the editing room because we could... Um, we found that we could express the state of mind that Ray Liotta was in at that time, being coked up and completely out of control. It was written in a lot of small montages, but it was never really visualized uh, on the script uh, the way you see it on film. For example, when Ray Liotta plunks the guns, the camera swish pans up to him. I just always enjoy all the strange jump cutting that we did, you know, uh, Ray Liotta making veal cutlets and and how we just uh, jumped around and just experimented and just had a hell of a lot of fun uh, violating every rule there is. During the previews, I got annoyed. The audience got annoyed, so I made it even faster, more relentless in a way. We can make it even more jagged. We can make it more fractured. And so we started doing more jump cuts. What I love about it is the annoyance at having to go bring the guns to Jimmy, knowing damn well Jimmy's not going to buy them. Stop with those f-ing drugs. They're making your mind into mush. That should put you in a position to say, what am I doing in my life? No, he's annoyed that I know Jimmy's going to make me bring this around. He's not going to want I'm going to put him back in the trunk. I'm going to have to go over here. I've got to stir the sauce. I swear this helicopter's following me, but that can pay attention to that. I think it is. No, it isn't. Picking up his brother. Drugs, coke, girlfriends. They're hiding guns in garbage pails. And it goes on like that. Everything seemed to be of the same importance. All the same level. He could not differentiate at that point. <laughs> Total madness. <laughs> And it was total madness, and Henry Hill's life was spiraling out of control, chased and followed every, at every turn. Goodfellas was released on September 19, 1990. Here's the initial reaction from movie critics Siskel and Ebert. Since 1976, when he directed Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese has stood, I think, alone at the top of the art of film directing in the world today. His Raging Bull was generally conceded to be the best film of the decade of the 1980s, and now with Goodfellas, Scorsese has scored another magnificent achievement. This is a great film, a film about Scorsese's favorite subjects, the great tragic subjects like avarice and jealousy, murder and guilt, and it ranks with The Godfather in his portrait of the crime syndicate. I have never seen 
even a movie by Scorsese that really wrapped me up so much into the world of the emotions of these people. A day, two days after the movie was over, I still myself felt guilty, I think identifying with the guilt of the Ray Liotta character, guilt not only that he did bad things, but the worst kind of guilt, which is the guilt that he still wanted to do them. He wishes he was still doing them. What I love about the film and what I like about Scorsese's work is he takes, in a very theatrical, exciting way, moral stands. Mm -hmm. He makes The Last Temptation of Christ. He makes Raging Bull about, he makes films about sinners mm -hmm. and finds the sa saints and sinners and sinners and saints. Mm -hmm. And this guy, he's saying about the mob, these guys are scum. Mm -hmm. He says it. That's so refreshing in an artful, beautiful way. It's a fascinating movie. It's a it's a great well, American film. Okay, I've seen it twice. I'm going back lots more times. And what okay. I'll go back for is small things, editing scenes, uh, the, the way he jumps in on dialogue. And my wife will tell you every time Goodfellas comes on, she can count me out of anything she has planned for the next two hours or three. It's just the way it is. If you watch it from the beginning, you can't stop. But come in the middle of it and you can't stop. Here's co-writer Nicholas Pileggi recalling how Martin Scorsese himself reacted to his own film on opening night. I mean, when Godfellas opened, uh, it was the opening night. And I'm there, Nora's with me, and Marty is sitting next to me, and Helen's on the other. And uh, finally it goes on, and it's Zigfield, and we're in black tie. And we're watching it, and I get, I get this elbow. I says, what? See, we should have cut that scene. That's, he's talking too much. We get, and it's Marty. We're in tuxedos. It's the opening night. You can't do anything. Forget it. Sit back and enjoy it. And he laughed, and we watched the rest of the movie. But even then, on the opening night, he's thinking about how he could play around with it. Yeah, and that's what all artists are. They're never really happy. They just got to move on to the next thing because they want to tinker with a little more. After the film's premiere, the real Henry Hill, who was played by Ray Liotta, was so proud of the movie that he went around revealing his true identity and boasting that the film was about him. He only had one problem. He was in the witness protection program. The FBI had to remove him from where he was and give him a new location. In conclusion, here's Leonardo DiCaprio articulating what almost all of us who have watched Goodfellas felt and experience. Goodfellas is one of those movies that whenever it comes on television, there goes my next few hours. I'm absolutely going to watch that. And that's what's so powerful about that movie in particular. And, and Marty's work for that, for that matter. There's something about the way he connects you as an audience member and envelops you completely into another world that you become entranced by it and the rest of the world dissolves away and that's the magic of really making movies the goodfellas magic has made such an impact on the culture that it has even penetrated into the cooking world which is no surprise considering the amount of time scorsese spends shooting and discussing food in the movie but contrary to the posh jailhouse scene where Paulie advocates using a razor blade to cut garlic so thin that it will liquefy with a little oil, the technique in reality isn't very practical. The garlic tends to brown too quickly. The key step is that you must keep the oil at a lukewarm temperature. Instead of a razor blade, it's usually easier to mash it with a fork. Still, certain Italian cookbooks suggest you slice the cloves good fellas thin and to cook them low and slow and by the way just go to youtube 
and Google the scene where they're cooking because there isn't a better scene in the history of movies about eating and food. And this is what Scorsese was great at doing, piling on these life details that bring you into the world, envelop you, and carry you away. And uh, let's take a listen if Jesse's got that. In prison, dinner was always a big thing. We had a pasta course, and then we had a meat or a fish. Paulie did the prep work. He was doing a year for contempt, and he had this wonderful system for doing the garlic. He used a razor, and he used to slice it so thin that it used to liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. It's a very good system. Vinny was in charge of the tomato sauce. Ah, got the smell. That treat, the kinds of meat and meatballs. You've got the veal, beef, and pork. Ah, good, but you got to have the pork. Pork, that's that's the flavor. I felt he used too many onions, but it was still a very good sauce. And there you have it, and that's why we love it. It was the life. Scorsese's right. It wasn't about any one character. It was the life that was the main character. And, boy, at the end of that movie... Henry Hill is just at a loss. He just can't believe it's over. That's the world he chose, and it's the world we're transfixed by. This is Lee Habib, the making of Goodfellas. Great job on this, Greg, as always, on these pieces. No one does them better on the culture, on the movies. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of the making of Goodfellas. Goodfellas.